0: Jeff, if you want to see the game of cricket in a whole new perspective, then check out the latest book from Bloomsbury Sport, Cricketomics, The Anatomy of Modern Cricket. That's what I was told to say. But let's say what we want to say about a book that we now know pretty well.
1: (laughs) I didn't think that sounded hammy. I was like, that's a very corny start for (laughs) you. Well, this is a book that we've both now read. We've interviewed Stefan and Wiggy. Basically, what they've done is is taken a 20-odd different interesting questions like why does this happen in cricket you know why do why do all of england's batters come from private schools and their bowlers come from public schools why does south africa have a problem producing black test cricketers like how do things work in india why hasn't the population size corresponded to world cricketing dominance and is that starting to happen recently what's the future between franchise to domestic club cricket and international cricket and why has cricket developed so differently to football in that respect. All of these kind of single case studies and then they get the data, they do the analysis, they crunch the numbers and they try to draw some conclusions from the evidence available. It's really interesting stuff. Yeah.
0: Yeah and sort of unusual stuff like, you know, how does weather impact who wins? But not like in a kind of what you and I might say down the yeah. pub, Jeff, but actually putting some data behind this yeah. and working out where weather has clearly had an effect on On teams win-loss ratio Depending on what the temperature is when they left their country compared to what it is when they arrive at the country they are visiting. Like even sort of like how Jay Saria and Gilchrist, you know, we think about them changing the short form game, but really what they did was change test cricket. Uh, England's missed opportunity to have a league structure like football when, you know, Kerry Packer came along that maybe that's something he could have done. Revisiting old questions and and thinking about ones uh, for the future. It's a ripper book. I certainly recommend it. It's out on Amazon at the moment if you're in the UK and some other parts of the world, if you're in Australia, you can pre-order it there at the moment. It's most straightforward, Jeff, uh, You will put that, I'm sure, in the show notes. It's called Criconomics. It's Stefan Szymanski and Tim Wigmore. It's a fantastic read, and it is made by Bloomsbury Sports. Click through to it in our show notes, then buy yourself a copy. On with the show. I
1: had to go about down- it. This is the final word story time, our weekend programme where we wander back through the hallways, the laneways, the byways of cricket history, and sometimes other history, and sometimes the future, and who knows? We are all travellers through time, are we not? It's just most of us are moving in a relatively consistent speed. Jeff Lemon with you, Adam Collins with me. Uh, a gorgeous morning over the pines in British Columbia at my end. Uh, how are things at your end? They're good. It's a, it's a
0: muggy day here in London, a muggy afternoon. I, I plan to prep for this uh, while watching the first Sri Lanka-Australia T20 International. That wasn't to be because mm-hmm. it's on a TV station here called hum Masala, which I'd never heard of until four hours ago. I could watch it on the ICC platform, but after ranting and raving about the ICC on the weekly show, I thought that it'd be a bit disingenuous to go and give them 20 quid or whatever <laughs> it is. <laughs> but I, I probably will at some stage uh, or, or mm-hmm. find some other way of watching it. But no, it's good. Things are well. I'm off to Nottingham... I guess I'm off to Nottingham the day after tomorrow. Tomorrow is the, the Surrey T20 I'm doing. There's a, a women's T20 final snuck in there on Saturday, so it's mm-hmm. a, a pretty busy week, which is why we're recording Storytime on Tuesday, like organised little podcasters that we are.
1: Yeah, well, aside from the fact that it's the episode we should have recorded last weekend that we didn't get around. To. That's true. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you, know, you give with one hand, Upset you take does. away with the other. That's, that's the way things are in this particular part of the world where, um, you know, life's a little bit slower in rural British Columbia. That's what I've discovered. I noticed this story yesterday. It was a Canadian border story where the US Border Patrol had put up pictures of a supposed drug bust on the uh, on the border of some people coming back over from Canada where, you know, a lot more things are legalised here. There are there are signs down all the highways saying, come into our dispensary for a curbside pickup, you know, like it's, it's amazing how quickly capitalism takes over from prohibition when it does. Yes. But on the other side of the border, you know, not big on imports and so they'd said, oh, we uh, we detained two men and searched their car and found a, a quantity of uh, what was it, ecstasy and and psilocybin mushrooms and, and marijuana. And they put pictures up of the bust, and it's like four little mushrooms in a film canister and like four pills. <laughs> and that's it. Like that was the big bust that they're, they're, they're promoting <laughs> online, the, the US Border Patrol people. And the best comment I saw underneath it was someone saying, Thank God they could have started a podcast. <laughs> 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 so, that's yeah, that's it all us. back nicely. That's us.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that is indeed us. Well, enjoy your time in British Columbia is all I'm going to say about that. Jeff. it looks a delightfully clear day where you're recording at the moment. It lets you fill your lungs and exhale with some authority and some enthusiasm. The game we're about to play.
1: Mm. Nerd Pledge. Hello, neighbours. Hello, uh, hello, world. Hello, sunshine. Hello, majestic eagles flying overhead. It is the game of Nerd Pledge, the accidental game, the reverse quiz of the final word. Uh, here is how Nerd Pledge works, if you do not know. There are people who like us to make this show, and so they send us contributions. They are the funders of the show. But they don't do that in a regular way. They don't say here is a note or a coin issued by the realm in a denomination with which you're familiar. No, they get under the hood and they make a very specific number out of that currency because their number relates to cricket in some way. And we have to work out what the relationship is. For instance, Chris Arkell has sent us through £1.79 British pence. So 179 means something And we have to figure out what it is. Another quirk of the game is that Josh, no last name, just Josh, has sent us through 179 AUD. So they've got the same number. Which means, in theory, when someone has the same number on the show, we put them together because the theory is that it might have the same answer. And very occasionally, that has been the case. And today... It is definitely the case. I know this to be true by my deductive reasoning that Chris Arkell and Josh have sent 179 for the same reason. So that comes with a a clue from Josh, which
0: is D-A-B for my next pledge. And for Chris, he's also confirmed that his is a dusty old bastard, so we better play the MUSIC (laughs)
1: only, or in this case, the two and only for Chris Arkell and Josh. We're looking for a dusty old bastard. Now, Josh is the person who last time sent us a clue comprised of Limp Biscuit lyrics. So um, I did think for a minute that DOB could mean a dusty old biscuit, but it does not. It means a dusty old bastard who is a player who played a long time ago and didn't play a whole lot. So it could almost be Mark Haslam from New Zealand, but it's not really long enough ago, uh, the New Zealand cap numbers for 179. It's not going to be Jackie McGlue, who was 179 for South Africa, or Eldine Baptiste great name another great name out of the caribbean or uh yasir ali from bangladesh Uh, 179 is india cap sanjay mandraker one of your favorites adam so um not going to be him people have heard of him but to get dusty we've got to go back to an australian cap or a british cap and we've got a couple of military connections here so australian cap 179 was len johnson who is a DOB only mm-hmm. played one test match because he got his start apparently as a cricketer playing in an exhibition competition called the Sheffield Shield that was played in the Solomon Islands to entertain troops after world war 2 played one test in the 1948 India series when Bradman had his last big glut of runs.
0: Didn't really go to original, did they? We're going to have an exhibition competition. We're going mm-hmm. to call it the Sheffield Shield. Yeah. Mr. Sheffield. Mr. We're Sheffield. They could have gone for any name they chose. Well, you know what we'll do. We'll call it the same thing we play for when it's not wartime at home.
1: Yeah. Well, I think the idea was to try to convince the troops that it was the Sheffield Shield so they would feel right. like they were watching something of a, of a high calibre or whatever it is. Uh, because, you know, those were the days when Australia paid attention to the Solomon Islands. Uh, not anymore. Even... Speaking
0: of Mr. Sheffield Jeff I I note that Aaron Gox who's a comedian on Twitter who we both follow he has performed uh, the nanny theme on Mm -hmm. his TikTok account this week which is brought to my attention by one of our patrons in the DMs it it has been put to me that maybe this is a result of Goxie being a final word listener after our performance a couple of weeks ago
1: maybe we've got everything linked. maybe maybe we're in his head yeah Ah, all right. I like it. Look you know, well well Passing culture forth. culture is an expanding web of um of references and influences and and we all influence one another. Everybody everybody out there, <laughs> even if you just stayed in bed and thought about the nanny theme, Adam, in some way it would reach across the ether, across the universe and, and, and tickle a cell in someone else's brain, I'm sure of it. I've been in British Columbia a week. Everything's spiritual now. <laughs> um Okay. <laughs> So the point is, it's probably not Len Johnson, cap number 179 for Australia, even though he's dusty old bastard territory, because I think for, for quality of story, it has to be Major William Booth. Now, this is a cricketer, Adam, played for England in the, uh, the, the very early days of the 1900s. And the best bit about Major William Booth is that Major is his first name. Right, it's not It's not his rank. <laughs> he, okay. They were like, all right, your first name is Major, and you're going to go around calling yourself Major Booth for your entire life. Then he joins the army, but he joins as a private, so he's Private Major <laughs> William Booth. <laughs> Then he gets promoted to sergeant. So he's Sergeant Major. I suppose had it had
0: the other way around. It had to be the other way around and his Brian. first name was Private. Major Private.
1: <laughs> now we're talking. Now we're talking. That's a communications minister issue, I think. <laughs> <laughs> a major privacy issue. Right. So, so then he's Sergeant Major and then eventually he gets commissioned in the West Yorkshire Regiment and ends up as second lieutenant. So he's second lieutenant Major Booth, but he never gets promoted <laughs> enough to be Major Major Booth, which would. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) have been the ideal bit. Um, So, second left-handed Major Booth, uh, before the war, he he, gets a spot for Yorkshire by about 1910, after a couple of little false starts he has uh, two seasons where he makes over a thousand runs and three where he takes over a hundred wickets so he's a he's mostly a bowler but he can bat and he's got a pretty prodigious record in his best years he's a he's one of those classic bowlers of the era I think as in sort of quickish spin probably maybe called medium pace but with you know, that kind of breakback action that makes the ball move off the surface, that kind of thing that they always talk about. He gets in the player's side versus the gentleman in 1913 and takes a couple of wickets and contributes to a win. And so then he makes the touring party under Johnny Won't Hit Today, Douglas to South Africa in 1913-14, where he plays the first test and the fifth test and I think does pretty well on, on the records. You know, he's not dominant, but he takes seven wickets across two tests against a a pretty ordinary opponent, two big wins for England, but didn't play any more times after that. All up, he played 144 times for Yorkshire, 557 wickets, including this great record where he bowled unchanged through two consecutive matches, through four innings, um, of of first-class cricket because he was just knocking people over right, left and centre, except... There's an innings, and this is all with Alonzo Drake, who's a left-arm spinner at the time. There's one innings uh, where where our guy, Major Major, takes none for 50 and Drake takes 10 for 35 while they're both bowling unchanged through the innings, which seems, you know, a, a bit rude that <laughs> you can get none for a while having that performance.
0: Uh, I know that people like it when we foreshadow things early in the show. That won't be the last time you hear about 10 wicket hauls in this episode of Storytime.
1: Dun, dun, dun. Anyway, then the war happens, the First World War, you may remember it's classic, over 100 years ago now. Uh, and in July 1916, Major, Major William Booth, who's not a Major, he's a second lieutenant, goes out of the trenches at the Somme, which is not something that a lot of people came back from, and he did not. He got shot. And there's a story of another England county cricketer named Abe Waddington, who actually found him in no-man's land. They were sheltering in a shell hole for some hours, and Abe Waddington was with Major William booth as he died. Uh, He got buried in in France and the story says that his sister would light a candle in his room every evening just in case one day he came home.
0: That, that took a bit of a dark twist at the end there, Jeff. I we was sort of uh, enjoying that tale until the end. Um, nicely told all the same. Well, uh, there is our DOP. Nobody
1: gets out alive, you know. That's the thing about life.
0: I suppose not. Chris Arkle and Josh, thank you for your 179. Next up today, Jeff, is Sam Thurkelson. Uh, Sam is sent through 253 of the GBP and he sent through a clue as well.
1: A very brisk to the point clue, Adam. This cricketer played for the greatest Div 6 side in the world?
0: Yeah, okay. So I've ended up shirking this one, but for the right reasons. I'll explain. Ah, Sam Uh, Shirkelson. Yes. uh, I'm tipping that it would have required... Well, I know it would have required going back to Sam anyway um, because the the direction I was heading, and I reckon it's a direction where he's probably heading to, it needs a bit of narrowing down. But um, bear with me. So I think this will relate to ICC World Cricket League Division 6. Which was a competition that ran between 2009 and 2015, the ICC's 50-over competition that ran from it was what was called the Championship in Division 2, Division 3, all the way through to Division 8, and the top two teams would get promoted and, and the next two would get relegated across a two-year cycle. By all reports, it worked pretty well. wasn't a bad way of uh, sorting out teams uh, in the associate ranks, as it were, using the World Cup. Uh, cycles as the as the organising principle. Um, and it ended in 2015. So you can kind of look retrospectively as to what was the greatest team of Division Six. Well, it's clearly Guernsey. Guernsey came third in 2009. They won it in 2011. In turn, they got promoted. They immediately were relegated out of Division Five, came back to Division Six, played in that tournament again in the lead up to 2015, where they finished second. So they went bronze, gold, Higher division, silver. And you look mm-hmm. at it across the, the four tournaments that were played and Guernsey were the most successful team. So I hope this relates to a Guernsey cricketer. The problem is that the, the records aren't particularly crash hot and I couldn't quite work out where Sam was going to with 2 if that is indeed where he's going to. But I thought what I would do instead is talk about Guernsey more generally and specifically their relationship to the final word. Now, Jeff... I'm not even sure whether you know this, but Adam Bayfield and Tony Kerr will probably never quite appreciate the influence they had over the final word being what it is. They started the World Cricket Show in Guernsey many, many years ago. And when I first left my former life and I was thinking to myself, how am I going to penetrate this cricket mainframe? And I'm thinking to myself, maybe a podcast. Maybe it's going to be a podcast. Before This is pre-serial and thus before anyone was really listening Mm -hmm. to, to podcasts. And... There weren't many about at all for cricket. And the one that I found was the World Cricket Show. And I became quite a dedicated listener to this show that would go out. I was going to say once a week. It might not have been as often as that. But it would go out like if England were playing a major series, they might record like a, a glut of them and then go missing for a while. But, right. but Adam and Tony, both fabulous hosts and kept me coming back and inspired me to talk to you, Jeff, about maybe we should do mm-hmm. this. And, and here we are all these years later. Now... I was curious as to how many episodes they've recorded. They're up and thinking to myself, you know, maybe this 253 might weave its way in. Not quite. They've made 381 episodes. And according to their Twitter account, well, they joined the platform under the simple name of Cricket Show, which I've always enjoyed, back in early (laughs) 2009. So early 2009, in terms of cricket podcasting, that predates Sofa. I mean, you know, Test Match Sofa starts in the middle of 2009. So they are real pioneers, these two fellas. Anyway, so I went and checked and thought, I wonder what their 253rd episode was. And unfortunately, there's a clump of episodes that, are, that aren't there on their on their Acast page from about at 250 odd to about... 350 odd. And just by deductive reasoning, I'm pretty sure episode 253 would have been at the very start of the Ashes series in 2015. And when was that, Jeff? When our very first episode was recorded of The Final Word. So there's some synergy between Uh. our show and their show via the 253 that's been sent through by Samuel Thurkelson. And look, again, I I hope that this 253 relates to Guernsey cricket. And if it does, uh, let us know. But yes, I thought... I would just uh, note that the World Cricket Show, which I haven't really listened to an awful lot in recent years, but this will inspire me to go back and resubscribe and, and tap back in. I was a guest on there, oh, I don't know, I guess four or five years ago when I was able to tell them that story, that they were the reason behind the final word starting. But I'd like to see how they're going because, uh, yeah, they, they did a great job back when it wasn't profitable or
1: fashionable to make a cricket podcast. Pioneers. Can you imagine the nads on the guys who did this in covered wagons? Pioneers, Brian, we share their spirit. Um, no, I didn't know that. So um, thanks for sharing that with me. It's like you've been withholding the identity of one of my parents from me for my <laughs> entire life. And now it's come out in a, a dramatic television program in which secrets the secrets of a small <laughs> town will be laid bare. Um, right, well, thank you to Guernsey Cricket for that. And I hope, Samuel, that 253 is related to Guernsey in some way. You can let us know because that's how we do things on Storytime. You uh, go to the Nerd Pledge channel on our chat page or you send us a DM on Patreon and you let us know. John McFeet is up next with the number of $1.85.
0: If it isn't my old friend Mr McFeet with some legs for some arms and some arms for some feet, uh, he's got a clue. I've just updated my pledge. I brought all my high school supplies from this man without having any idea who he was. I feel ashamed. High school supplies sounds like what you're doing in British Columbia, Jeff. Uh, <laughs>
1: proceed. This is a family show, Adam. Um, right, John McFeet, one eighty-five, and a news agent who he bought supplies from. This <laughs> may not be right, but the only news agent I could think of, Adam, was, was Ian Redpath. Now I'm sure that Ian Redpath owned a news agency because I'm sure that I remember Ian Chappell, Ian Chappell telling Chappell us the story it. when. Well, okay, Ian Chappell talking about um, <laughs> talking about Ian Redpath is a definite <laughs> big tick, um, first tick on the bingo card. But he told us the story of uh, Redders, as, uh, as he liked to like to describe him, not going on an overseas tour with them because the cricket board wouldn't pay him the takings that. Uh, that would be the equivalent of closing his shop for the amount of time that he needed to tour. And Cipalli was incensed about this because it you know, wasn't that much money and he wanted his best opener on the tour and he didn't get him. So, and Redpath, I'm pretty sure it was a news agency, that business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was a, a dour sort of opening bat. Um, we talked about him, a couple of months ago in the the curiosity that he played 66 test matches over a dozen years or so, averaging 43.5. Good opener. We talked about him hitting two sixes in his last test match, having never hit a six in his career before that. So in test match 66, he went six and six. But I'm trying to find a 185 link. And look, it's not strong, but it is there. The link is the um, the famous Asher series of 74, 75. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lily and, and Thompson cutting sick, you know, hitting everybody. Big, scary stuff. You can make it into little half-hour... Um, historical doggos to play on cable TV 48 times a season, you know, (laughs) 1974, 5. Six tests, Australia win the first two. Uh, Third test, England go okay. It's it's one of those very, very level test matches where um, England make 242, Australia make 241, England make 244, Australia make 238. And it's a decent English team, John Edrich, Dennis Amos, Tony Gregg, making runs, but uh, the key for Australia is in the fourth innings. They end eight wickets down. They hold on for a draw. So this is an innings in which Max Walker faces 101 deliveries, uh, batting with Dennis Lilly for a long time to deny England a route back into the game. But uh, a vital role in the draw played by Ian Redpath, who top scores with 55 in the first innings, third highest score, run out for 39 in the second, and in that second innings... He uh, absorbed 169 balls, and in the first innings, he absorbed 185, which is the number from John McFeet. Is it a redoubtable innings to aid a draw by Ian Redpath in 1974-5? Probably not. But it's worth a shot. <laughs> that it
0: is. Thanks for telling us the story, and thank you, John McFeat. Next up is Mark Henderson, who we've had on the show before, talking about the wonderful project out at the uh, 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 the Griffin Field, isn't it, out of Dulwich, where I think it's called the Griffin Field, where they're making the um, the all women, all girls facility, which they've been fundraising for in recent months. Uh, Mark has sent through ten. 88, GBP, there's no clue which gives me the freedom to talk about anything I like. And, Jeff, you know how earlier we touched on 10 Well, this will relate to 10 This will relate uh. to a 10-wicket haul, a couple of them, actually. The first thing you do when you think 10 is think Jim Laker, don't you? Yeah, I mean, you might think Anil Kumlay, You might think Ajaz Patel, uh, who I was watching play Test Cricket last week, but the original, in Test Cricket at least, and the best, I suppose, uh, was Jim Laker, given that he took 19 for 90 in that Old Trafford Test against Australia in July 1956. But here's the thing. That wasn't the first time he took 10 against Australia, even in that summer. And that's what I want to tell you about today, Jeff. When he took 10 against the touring Australians for his county, Surrey, back in May of 1956. Now, just to go back a little bit, by this stage of his career, Jim Laker is 34 years of age, but he's only played 24 test matches, roughly half since his debut. He'd taken 86 wickets at 28, but he was out of the team as often as he was in it. Of course, he was part of that Leeds attack in 1948, where Australia chased down 400 plus on the final day. And it's said that that scarred him a little bit in the years that followed. He was a big part in the Ashes win in 1953 alongside his Surrey teammate Tony Locke when they won famously on their home ground there at the Oval but by 1954-55 Len Hutton didn't really fancy having spin in Australia. He had the Typhoon to uh, unleash it and, and all the rest so it was mostly about seeing that victory from England's perspective. So you press fast forward to 1956 and this is a big series for him at home and, and in the build-up to it at age 34, the right age, right place, right time, all the rest of it. There's a three-day match at the Oval beginning on the 16th of May. Now, Jim Laker wasn't actually keen to play. His young daughter had been up crook the night before. It was a warm day, and he said, look, I've barely slept. Let someone else play. But the captain, Stuart Surridge, said, no, no, he twisted his arm and said, we need you to play, uh, and also it's before the Ashes. We want you to We want you to play. So he's bowling that morning when Australia win the toss and elect a bat. Uh, under Johnson, and they do relatively well to begin. They're they're 62 without loss, Uh, and then that's when uh, Jim Laker is brought into the attack around half past 12 local time. He gets Jimmy Berkeley before wicket. That's the first wicket to fall when it's 62 for two, and then he sets up all day, bowling 46 overs on the trot, 18 of them maidens. At the tea break, he wanted to come off, but Surridge kept him going, And and a good thing too because he finishes with 10 for 88 in that first innings and Surrey win by 10 wickets, eventually chasing 20. Between all of that, Colin McDonald was the only resistance-making 89, as he would be as well. Old Trafford a few months later against the spin of Laker. Tony locked down the other end, who notoriously threw all the toys out of the pram, in that test match in Manchester, took none for 100 in 32 overs at the other end to Laker this time too. And he wasn't best pleased when Keith Miller smacked the ball out to deep extra cover and the fielder Dennis Cox dropped what was said to be a straightforward chance. It was later revealed that Cox dropped that catch on purpose because he wanted to be out there for a piece of history, the chance to be there for a 10 wicket bag, <laughs> and so it proved to be.
1: Might have had a couple of quid on it as well. He,
0: he might have, that's right. Uh, it was the first time since 1878 that Australia had been bowled out by one bowler and they were dismissed for 259. It was such a Bunsen burner that Alan Davison bowled spin instead of left arm seam up when it was Australia's chance. Sorry, eventually taking a lead of 88 into the second innings. And then Tony Locke takes the first six in the second dig. He's on for a 10 for himself. And who ruins it? Laker of course. Laker gets Slasher Mackay the 7th wicket of the innings and Locke of course by that stage is going pretty well and finishes with 7 for 49 so he's he's not soaking it up as he would be later in the summer. Australia all out 107 uh, Surrey win by 10 wickets. As it happened that wasn't the only 10 for even in domestic cricket for the season. A couple of weeks after Laker does it a bloke by the name of Ken Smales takes 10 for 66 for Yorkshire against Gloucestershire and then Tony Locke takes 10 of his own against Kent before the Ashes begins. 10 for 54. There was a 100-quid prize going that season for the best bowling figures. And by this stage, three blokes had already taken 10. Laker, (laughs) Smales, and Locke. Something about incentives, prize prize signals, whatever. And then, Uh of course, we know what happens at Old Trafford. Laker beats Locke by one run. He takes 10 for 53 to win the hundred quid. But the first of those 4 tenfers in 1956 was 10-for 88 and it was at the Oval and it does belong to Jim Laker and I'm pretty sure that will be what Mark Henderson is talking about. And as I sign off, I want to thank Cricket Country's Arunaba Sengupta for his detailed reporting on that you know, that Cricket Country website, sir. So. Uh, a wonderful resource for these kind of untold stories that we often tell as well. So, But yes, uh, the 10 for 88, uh, let us know Mark Henderson. Is it Jim Laker? I reckon it might be.
1: Yeah, he's pretty Surrey adjacent oh he is. Mark yep. Henderson. There's, uh, there's oh, a Surrey vibe.
0: Did you see Anna on the weekend, by the way, his daughter Anna who bowls the leg breaks, who had a shoulder yeah. problem last year. He posted a video of Anna bowling on Shane Warne Day, which was the the 29th anniversary of the Ball of the Century, which was celebrated. Uh-huh. Uh, the Tailenders fellas got that going. And Anna's delivery went viral. She, I mean, it, you know, we've seen her bowl before, Jeff, but this was, a, yep. you know, the perfect amount of flight and dip. You know, she's 12 and takes the off bail type thing. I met Anna last year with Mark down at um, Dulwich when we had the final word Oval Dream Boys game. And, yeah, she's going to be a bloody star. So watch this space.
1: Love it, love it, and, and I also love that Tony Locke had the experience that that uh, Major, Major William Booth had when of, uh, of yes. being at the other end while someone takes ten for his yes. goal through the end absolutely Ollie Goldman. 281 is the number from Ollie Goldman in the uh, year old Sterling. Yeah,
0: he has a clue for you, Jeff. It's in honour of one of my favourite individual batting performances by an English player. You'll need to think about the time batted. The duration taken in this player's first innings magically reveals what they would then go on to get in their second one.
1: Oh, so this took a bit of digging because I was looking for someone who batted for a period of time in the first innings of a match for the same number of minutes as the runs they made in the second innings which is not a straightforward thing to find but with a, with a little help from Ollie I, I had an area in which to look and eventually track this down right it's NASA Hussain's first match in charge of England, Adam. An era that I, I know you're always interested in. Edgbaston sure. in 1999. They're okay. playing against New Zealand, as they're yes, doing they right <laughs> at the moment. Um, under Stephen Fleming. Time of upheaval for the England team. So Alex Stewart's lost the captaincy and the gloves. They've got Chris Reid in as keeper. They've got Aftab Habib batting at number six. And they've got Alan Mullally comes in. Phil Tufnell comes back. Andy Caddick comes back to make up the bowling attack for Nasser Hussain. New Zealand... all out at the very end of day one. And then on day two, a little like the uh, test match we've just seen, 21 wickets fall on day two Mm. of the test match. England at one point are seven down for 45 and make 126. New Zealand are eight down for 52 and make 107. The tail enders make all the runs. Simon Doole, who's working over there at the moment, very good commentator these days, smacks 46 at the bottom of the order for New Zealand. And then... This is after England's innings, where Andy Caddick's made 33 and Alex Tudor has made 32, not out. Caddick bats for 101 minutes. Alex Tudor bats for 99 minutes. Oh. Ah. And then England gets set 208 to win. Stewart makes a three-ball duck. This is still before the end of the same day. He's the 21st wicket to fall that day. And so they send in Alex Tudor. Tudes, they liked the way he was batting at number 10. 10 or nine or ten in the first innings and they send him in at first drop as night watchman so he's just supposed to get through the day and then you know smack a couple the next morning and he does he comes out on day three and goes for it of course Rob Moody has the entire innings on YouTube for you to watch back which I have done and it's a It's a hell of an innings, this one from Alex Tudor. It's not a a tail end slogging innings. He's got David Lloyd commentating, so good colour. Starts off with a few scythes through cover. But then he starts playing these luscious straight drives. He plays like an on-drive. He goes, drills this one through extra cover off Daniel Vittori. Gorgeous shot. And the only blemish is there's there's actually a catch behind. He's caught behind off the toe end of Chris Cairns, but Chris Cairns has overstepped the front line. No ball. So Tudor gets reprieved starts getting out the square cut, starts playing back foot punches, brings up his 50, and then he opens up the leg side. He's, like, whipping off his pads. He's playing these on drives. even gets a pull shot out at one point. He's mostly batting with Mark Butcher and Nasser Hussain. But he's on 84 when Graham Thorpe comes out. And Graham Thorpe does not read the room in this occasion, right? Tudor on 84. They need 34 runs to win. And Graham Thorpe comes out and just smacks 21 in no time at all, meaning that scores are level... Tudor's only added 11 runs in the meantime. He's on 95 and with scores level he needs to hit a 6 to try to get 100 which he, he goes for it he goes up against the short ball, gives it a big slog, gets the top edge and it goes for 4 not 6 so he ends, ends up with 99 not out to match the 99 minutes that he batted in the first innings and he doesn't ever get that chance at a test match 100 again but he does end up with a famous innings of 99 not out as the pitch invasion starts and the best bit of it all 21 fours, no sixes, 21 fours. So 84 of his 99 runs came in, in boundaries across Love across this run chase as he mowed it down, and England got their three wickets down comfortably in NASA's first match in charge.
0: We've, we've seen Alex Tudor make 100, Jeff. Do you remember that? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah! Uh, it was an authors eleven game against I can't remember who. We were doing the uh, the commentary for Gorilla Cricket, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, on our first Ashes trip together in twenty fifteen, and Tude's made a hundred. Lovely fella, and they've both retold that story many times over the journey and uh, of course Surrey teammates as well and great mates so yeah funny how that all all played out but Tude's yeah injury curtailed career but gives so much back to the game uh, these days including in his commentary one of the real good guys in cricket Alex Tudor so I'm glad you got a chance to tell the story of the day he made a test unbeaten 99 thank you to Ollie Goldman I'm sure that's correct next up is James Tiernan now This took some digging around, but in the end it became screamingly obvious to me. James Tiernan sent through 485, Jeff.
1: 485, and he said this Given we ended last time at Roker Park, the former home, the erstwhile home, uh, which means former. People often use that one in the wrong way, but it's correct here. Of Sunderland AFC, let's head six miles north for an Australian rules legend. Uh, on an unrelated note, if I win a slab of Brick Lane, I'd like to find an address for Mick Lewis, <laughs> a former Durham player who I always felt sorry for after that game. He could probably do with a drink. Well, hopefully the Brick Lane slabs will be back Uh, Before too long, we're working on that. But uh, if it ever comes up again, James, we will try to send one to Mick Lewis. So we're looking for a cricketer who has some AFL link six miles north of Roker Park. Yes,
0: an Aussie rules link more than an AFL link, but I know what he's trying to say. Yeah, uh, and, and James also added that he lived in a street named after this cricketer, uh, and it didn't take me long to put the pieces together that it has to be the inexhaustible A.E. Stoddard, a man we've talked about a number of times on the show. And James was somewhat apologetic, saying, "I know you've mentioned him a lot, but we haven't done the footy bit, so this gives us another way back in." I've never uh, heard the footy bit.
1: What's the? Yeah. Way? So this is you're just opening up a new field of inquiry for me.
0: Exactly right. So I'll, I'll get to it. I'll reheat the story to begin with. So So people know where we're going with Uh, here and why we're talking about Stoddart. So he was born in South Shields, which is exactly six miles north of Sunderland Athletic Football Club. So that all checks out. And thus, I knew he must be talking about the 485 that he made. That was the world record score at the time. Now, Stoddart did mess around with other codes, oval ball codes, uh, namely captaining England in rugby as well. And we'll come back to that in a moment. The 485, I'm sure most final word listeners know this already, but that's in 1886... When he's 23 years of age, so goes the tale, as written by David Frith in his book, My Dear Victoria Stodd. He was up all night the night before. Uh, he was playing for Hampstead Cricket Club against Stoics. I'm not quite sure if that if that's an abbreviation for a county, Jeff, or a, or somewhere in England that I'm not familiar with, but Stoics all the same. Hampstead had him open in the batting. He batted for six hours and 10 minutes, was the seventh man out for 485, which became the highest score made in any cricket that was recorded to that point. That night, off the field and up up the hill uh, to the tennis club, Cumberland Tennis Club, around the corner, for five sets of tennis. Then he was out on the tiles again, uh, carousing and gambling and drinking and, until three in the morning. Three days later, so he's, you know, he's had two massive, massive nights with a, a six-hour innings in, in between, where he's made 485, which was the record. Three days later, he made a double-tonne, then he made 98 for Middlesex. He made his maiden first-class century in a week that was all collectively worth 790 runs. And that's why Simon Wild, Oscar, um, referred to him as the inexhaustible AE Stoddart when, um, when retelling the story about 10 years ago or so in, uh, I think it was the Wisden Cricketer at the time. Very recently, Jeff, we had a pledge for AEJ or James Collins and the 628 he made in 1899 to break Stoddard's record of 485 13 years later. That was made at Clifton Close in Bristol. Declan Lawler, who lives in Bristol, great friend of the show. Uh, He ran the Thames track last year for Lords Tabs as part of their association with us on The Final Word. That was the score that broke the Stoddard 485. So that was when James said we've been talking in and around this recently, that that's what he's referring to. Now... There have been many other scores between 485 and the now record, the bullshit record of the 1,009 that we've discredited many times from that school game in India a, a few years ago, but they are the three that have broken the record. I mean, the record goes 485, 628, 1,009. I think there's something like quite nice in that, that it's only been broken. I mean, yeah, sure, players have made more than 485 subsequently, um, namely Brian Lara, and I'm sure if we... Dug around into club cricket, you'd find many players who sort have of hit 500 in an innings, I suppose, or at least a handful. But you know, the yeah, world record there's holders. There's the
1: Charles Edie score, the uh, the daybreakers one from 1900s Hobart, which uh, exactly. I remember off the top of my head.
0: But. Yeah, exactly. So. You know, there are others who have done it, but they don't, they've don't. they never held the record. That's only Stoddart, Collins, and that kid in India who I can't remember his name. You usually can, Jeff, can't you? Pranav
1: Dhanavade. There you go.
0: You got it. You got it. I feel like we beat up on him, but it's not about him. It's more about how it happened and the nonsense around it. Anyway, so Stoddart, this is the footy bit. First of all, he captained England in sixteen Test matches. He he had that highest score at the MCG for an English captain, one seven three, made in eighteen ninety four. That lasted for eight decades. He was a serious cricketer, but he was also an ideas man in many ways. He he was the first England captain to bowl first when winning a toss. He was the first English captain to declare an in innings closed in the first innings. He, he tragically lost his way after cricket and committed suicide in nineteen fifteen. He shot himself when he gotten ill, but. He was also a footballer. He led England, he captained England in four of the 10 rugby test matches he played. And he visited Australia in 1888 in what would go on to later be known as the first British Lions tour. And on that trip in 1888, he, he not only was playing rugby union, they played 19 games of Australian rules football. And they won six of them, (laughs) this rugby union team, the British Lions as, as it would later be known. And he captained them too. So when it's noted here by James that he's an Aussie rules legend, well, that's on account of the fact that in that extraordinary trip in 1888, Uh, a couple of years after his 485 he also captained six victories in the 19 games they played that's a lot of footy it's a whole season it's a season yeah a man who ticks pretty much every final word box the great Stoddy and in 2015 many many years later I ran a Stoddard tribute night where I took everyone out on the pistol four in the morning we all went out to borderline danced the night away and we woke up in the morning and we played a game of cricket like Stoddy did all those years before uh, Mm. and we won under my captaincy and that was also on our first um, Ashes (laughs) trip we were referring to before Jeff back in, in 2015. Uh, so I hope he's resting in peace because uh, Lord knows he fitted a lot in uh, A.E. Stoddard.
1: I hope he's resting on the great cosmic dance floor. Do you know who he was playing? Like who these, who these Australian rules games were against? Was yeah, it against should... existing clubs?
0: I, I don't know, but that, that's, that's a good prompt. I might write to Frithy and, and ask him if I can. He'll, he'll know. <laughs> he'll know. I'll put that down as some homework for next week.
1: All right. All right. <laughs> Uh, always good to hear a stoddart story. Uh, Dom Griffiths comes up next with 4.36 GBP.
0: Now, there's a clue from Dom. I understand that you are both lovers of crosswords. Not not quite.
1: <laughs> 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 now, your clue, should you
0: choose to accept it, is when a bat is needed before fast spell, 6-7. Not mine. I saw it recently in a newspaper. With regards, apologies. Apologies. And appreciation.
1: Ah, uh, Dom. Decode uh, that for Dom, us, for those who you who aren't fans Yeah, yeah. So, as we've mentioned on the show before, we both uh, loathe cryptic crosswords. There is, I mean, in theory, they should be the sort of thing I'm interested in being word games, but. Some, I just find something about them so insufferable with like the, ooh, ooh, ooh how difficult, ooh, how diabolical, ooh, you know, it's, it seems so dramatically like villainous in terms of trying to confuse you with cryptics. And so, you know, my brain just doesn't do them very well. And so this is very clearly a cryptic crossword clue. When batter's needed with a an apostrophe, a possessive apostrophe, more a contraction, when batter is needed, four fast spell. So obviously it's a cricket themed clue uh, and I did not have a cricket themed fucking clue. Uh, so I, I I went and spoke to like I've got a few friends who are mad into cryptic crosswords so I sent a few messages around to cryptic crossword people saying how do you begin trying to decode this because there are methods for cryptic crosswords there's often some sort of indication within the clue that will tell you to be looking for say the certain numbered letter in the word you know the fifth letter in the word and then that's the one that the answer starts with and then that you can it tells you to you know drop off the bit the front of another word there are sort of signals that that give you a sense of what you're supposed to do with the components of the clue and they're within the clue and and so you use that to it becomes its own key to unlock itself so there's always there's always a double meaning and I was bashing away at this trying to trying to figure out what it means and, and and the way they set these out means that because it's using cricket terminology it's certainly not about cricket but it's using that to try to trick you in in some way um and I was also trying to figure out how the 436 would relate so I thought oh I could do your trick with the date and then I realized there were not 36 days in April so it could not be the 36th of <laughs> April um and eventually I, I got some help with decoding this okay so when batter is needed Before fast spell. So what's another way of interpreting the word fast or a fast spell could be a period when you're fasting. And uh, what's a period when you're fasting in the traditional religious calendar? could be Ramadan. It could be Lent. You fast during Lent. And what do you do on the day before Lent traditionally? Fish. uh, Not the fish.
0: Oh, no. The, pa- I thought batters I'm saying batters I'm thinking fish I'm getting ahead of myself
1: The pancakes Remember uh, do You would do that thing At yes. school Where they, they'd make you we did. Uh, you'd, you'd all make You'd have pancake day um, And everybody yep. liked Pancake day Because you got to eat pancakes Happy days Good stuff And you would do the pancakes thing. I think it's some, there's some sort of folk story where it's like you had to use up the leftover food in the house or like use up the, the flour and the milk or something before you started the period of fasting for Lent. And Pancake Day was also known as Shrove Tuesday. And so Shrove Tuesday is a time when batter is needed before a fast spell. So the answer to the clue is Shrove Tuesday. Mm. What does that have to do with 4.36? Wouldn't have a fucking clue. It is not (laughs) 47 days before Easter, but the date for Easter changes, so there's no set date. It's usually late February up until early March. Uh, Then you've got Ash Wednesday, which is the first day of Lent, but it moves each time. What? 4.36, though. Like, where does that link to anything?
0: It's going to be a Bible verse, isn't it? Or or Uh a page in the... I mean, I I was going to say a page in the Bible, but presumably... That changes uh, you know, as well. Gideon's Bible, as it were, changes from, from publication to publication. Yeah. But yeah. it'll be like when we've done the laws of the game, like, you know, 43.6 or whatever. Ah. I bet you this ends up being some some relationship to a verse. I mean, which I, therefore, have no chance of working out, instantly. Right.
1: But like Stone Cold um, Steve Austin 3.15.
0: 3.16, wasn't it? But yes, I see where you're sorry. going with that. Yeah, I, I reckon that's where we're going to end up
1: in the revisit next week. Huh? I'm just uh, just having a little poke around the internet at the moment. The book of John has a, a, what is it? Verse, chapter 4, verse 36, or whatever it is. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower <laughs> and reaper may rejoice together. Does that have anything to do with pancakes? It might. It <laughs> might. Look, I'm not. Uh, Deuteronomy 4.36. Out of heaven he made thee to hear his voice, that he might instruct thee. And upon earth he shewed thee his great fire. That's nice. Thank you for shewing me your great fire. Yeah, look, 4.36, it could be that. It could be something else, but we did manage to solve the clue with a fair bit of assistance from other people, it must be said.
0: Good on you, Dom. Uh, thanks for sending that through. Thanks for your continued support. And you're right, they are tough. Don't all hurry to send cryptic crossword clues because we won't get through very many stories each uh-huh. week. <laughs> uh, Liz Brant's our last new number, and, Jeff, you're going to handle this one as well. This is a free swing. This is 654 AUD. Have fun with it. Enjoy it. Embrace it.
1: Well, uh, no team, Adam, has ever made 654 in a test innings. Uh, I did think in links to final word things in Christchurch in 1971, New Zealand were 6 for 54 when Glenn Turner, final word fave, got out uh, and they ended up being bowled out for 65 on the first day of the test. Uh, that surface turned from day one, so that was a day that deadly Derek Underwood took 6 for 12, if you don't mind, Adam, his most economical 6 for. Got a couple of 7 and an 8, but that was his best 6
0: Should have got a 10-fer was Should. Fair Dinkum.
1: <laughs> if he was uh, true blue in the Fair Dinkum department, he would have <laughs> <He would've> been. <laughs> uh, is that a G-up or is that Fair Dinkum? Uh, so he, he ended up with 297 test wickets, which means he almost challenged Lance Gibbs, uh, 309. Lance Gibbs, who held the world record for some time until Dennis Lilly took it off him, might have got there if he wasn't a rebel tourist. Yeah, well, that's a very good reason not to get there. And so, uh, take that um, right. But so that's a that's a that's a little setup, right? A team that was six for fifty-four, and somebody took six for twelve. Uh, that exact same thing happened a totally different time as well. Uh, Sri Lanka played a one-off test in Chandigarh in nineteen ninety, and your favourite Venkatapati Raju Adam was doing the bowling Sri Lanka got bowled out for 65 and Raju took 6 for 12 so an identical mirroring of the deadly Underwood performance uh, sorry Sri Lanka didn't get bowled out for 65 they got bowled out for 82 but that was an in innings that also included the 6th highest Bannerman performance when Asanka Gurusina made 52 out of the 82, 63.4% huh. anyway that's and just here the, I,
0: and here I was thinking Asanka Gurusina it was just a bloke got hit in the cock Yep, no. Nope. He nearly it him as well.
1: Yeah, he's uh, he's number six.
0: I think he had a bumble, didn't he? Didn't the old boy fall inside the box in the moment that it was? I think he had a bit of a moment oh, when I think it okay. fell in.
1: It, it came right. It, it the, uh, the 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 clamshell opened, and if you will, yes. and like the birth of Aphrodite, uh, it, it was it was <laughs> born through the opening shell as it came out of the uh, the shallows. Yeah, it's always a it's a visceral story that one, the uh, the genitals of Uranus, the the god of the sky are cut off and thrown into the sea where they magically fertilize the oceans and Aphrodite is born unconventional way of doing things but the Greeks always have been so right <laughs> that, all that said that's a, uh, that's a roundabout way of getting to the part of the answer that I think is actually the answer because I just thought of those <laughs> other things were interesting but surely with 654 we're looking at Peter Siddle whose innings figures in Brisbane just so happened to be 6 for 54, a notable innings. Why, do you say? Why? Because he took a hat-trick on his birthday. Having already picked up Kevin Peterson and Paul Collingwood in consecutive overs, caught in the slips, Uh, then there's 26 overs of Alistair Cook and Ian Bell batting together. They add 72, and then the magic happens. Cook caught at first slip. Watson takes the catch. Matt Pryor has a big drive at a fast straight one and misses it gets his stumps rearranged and then Stuart Broad smashed on the toe, plumb in front, Got a hat-trick. Not yet, he hasn't. Not yet, he hasn't. Uh, they've got to go up to the review. So the hat-trick's so nice, he got to celebrate it twice. Uh, Peter Siddle follows it up a couple of overs later with uh, Graham Swan trapped in front to complete six for uh, a, a great bowling performance that is somewhat detracted from by the second innings where England made 517 for one. And the bit that I forgot about that, which I particularly enjoyed, was that the one wicket is Andrew Strauss getting stumped off a part-time spinner in Marcus North, slogging after having already reached a ton. So in terms yeah. of like a team feeling like they took a wicket, that's like the least wicket-taking feeling wicket of all time. You know, the, the guy charging at your part-timer with 100 on the board.
0: It was the one day of that Test match I went to, day four of the Brisbane Test in 2010. John Brumby lost the previous day. Well, I think it was still unclear who'd won that election uh, when we uh, where we departed. And Well, I, th- I think it was just me, actually. I went up and joined Swanee. I remember we had a blue out the front of the gabba. Never nice oh, yeah. to have a blue with your boss. But um we kissed and made up, I'm sure. Not literally. But he yeah, we, we watched Australia get absolutely uh pulverized that day. Uh and um went back to Canberra that night. That's what I remember of that five seventeen for one. And I should add, by the way, for those who are coming to Lords on the fifteenth of June, which I suppose is only a few days away when you're listening to this, uh, that's when I'm playing at Lords. A few people are coming along, and Ian Bell's in the team with me, uh, so oh, good. Uh, he's he's the pro who's been brought in, and I'm the cricket insider of sorts. And uh, there'll be some other uh, final word representation that day via Dan Price, who was part of our eleven uh, last year at Dulwich. So it's going to be a fun old day. If you want to come along, I'm reliably informed you can just walk in the gates there at Lords and and watch uh, some of the action that day with Ian Bell and myself. And I'll
1: be holding a Woodstock, Jeff. I've got one being shipped to me at the moment. Beautiful. Well, as good a time as any to mention that if you want a Woodstock cricket bat, you can get 20% off it because you know us, uh, woodstockcricket.co.uk. The code is TFW20 for 20% off. Mine looks mine looks unbelievable. It oh, yeah? looks
0: so hot. I can't wait to. Once I've got it, I'll I'll post some photographs of it. But I've asked specifically for the purple and gold stickers, uh-huh. so um, it's on its way.
1: Beautiful, beautiful stuff. Uh, the revisits, though, this is not. Strictly a revisit, but as a follow-up to the episode in which I said that uh, former Australian Captain Billy Murdoch was a fraud, uh, a cheat, a stain on the fabric of the uh, history of Australia, a uh, betrayer of the Australian public. I thought this might prompt a bit of a response, you know. Yeah, some people some people may may think that's unfair, but I think... I think that we we need villains, you know, they help us crystallise what we're about when we know what we're against and uh, straight on the shit list, Billy Murdoch. He's uh, Some people on the um, chat page actually made a shit list 11. They put together suggestions of who were the least liked, final word, cricket people who should be playing in the shit list 11. So there have been some good suggestions on there if you're not on the... The, uh, the chat page and, and you're a patron send us a message and we'll get you connected uh, Pat Rogers uh, excellent cricket historian says in defence of Billy Murdoch the man connected to my two nerd pledges and the fact that his winning of the Maltese cross which did not turn out to be a dog was one of the funniest segments of all on story time <laughs> um, <laughs> <but, laughs> slight misunderstanding I, I should when also I when I thought they'd given them a dog <laughs> well, they them gave a Maltese a cross <laughs> they gave every player on the team a dog that was nice of them wasn't it I had in the notes a
0: question for you how do they get them home through quarantine like, I think it might have been a medal. <laughs>
1: <laughs> also, I think the, uh, the the Stoics Cricket Club from before were the Stoics, as in, you know, some sort of organised oh, team right. called, okay. called the Stoics, rather than uh, being enough. an abbreviation for Stoister or, or something like that.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like it, if, if it were a minor county, I would probably uh-huh.
1: have heard of it. Anyway. Yep. Yeah, you would have. I wouldn't. I don't even know where Gloucestershire is. Um, So Pat Rogers says, uh, Billy and Dr. Tup Scott had the first double century stand in tests in that game and it it took another 62 test matches for... Tip Foster to better Billy's score, uh, the two eleven that Billy Murdoch made, and he does make a very. So, so I don't think any of that counts for anything. Sure, he made a lot of runs. That was the point, is he made a lot of runs really slowly, and they didn't try to win the Test match when they only had three days. Uh, a point that Pat Rogers makes that is fair is that declarations were not allowed. So I did get stuck into him for not declaring, but they couldn't declare because the declaration didn't exist until so Stoddart came along. And so that's why, that, and and, and, that, and that's the and that's the
0: Stoddard declaration in eighteen. I said eighty
1: nine. Yeah, so it all ties together, and that is why uh, Alfred Littleton, the wicket keeper, took four wickets because he was bowling lobs and the Australians were trying to get out because they they couldn't declare but they were so far ahead that they were throwing their wickets away and just smacking him up in the air and that's how he ended up taking the four for the remains of best figures by a wicketkeeper in Test Cricket. Sure someone had some bets on it, some sports betting enthusiasts getting around at the time. Anyway, Pat Rogers says, just as the Aussies had a chance in that match when England were 8 for 181. Bloody Walter Reed peeled off a a century in 113 minutes to kill off any chance of victory. Yeah, yeah, okay. I still think they could have made 300 less and actually had a pop at them, Pat. But we've got an actual revisit for you, Adam, from Chris Byrne, which was $11.13, and you were trying to work out why it was Clive Rice, but we couldn't. Yeah, I
0: spent a lot of time telling the story of Clive Rice, and I couldn't quite work out where the 1113... Arrived at. I, th- I think we came pretty close, Jeff. But anyway, it became apparent through my back and forth with Chris that it was the other great South African all rounder of that era who played in England. Of course, it was Mike Proctor. It has to be. Like Barry Richards uh, did his best work at Gloucestershire. Proctor took 833 first class wickets at 19.6 with 42 fifers and 280 list day wickets at 18.8 for the club. Ridiculous numbers everywhere there. A career that ran from 1968 to 1980. 81, so just, bef- just before Clive Rice's era, Mike Proctor was dominating uh, in the Shires at Gloucestershire, uh, where Jeff will never quite be able to navigate his way to. Uh, worth remembering that uh, in the seven test matches that Mike Proctor played before they were excluded, he took 41 wickets at 15, so he was going to be a superstar. He could have been an all-timer. At the level below, he was. Uh, and all of those test matches were against Australia too, I should say, in 1967 and 1970. Then on top of the wickets... He hits 1st first-class hundreds, <laughs> twenty-one thousand runs at thirty-five. He's, he, I mean, he would have been right there with the big four all-rounders of mm. the era. He would have been there with you—both them, Hadley, Imran Khan, Kapil Dev. Like he would have been the fifth of that group had he been mm. playing Test cricket. Hard to imagine that that wouldn't have been the case. It was known as Proctorshire, Gloucestershire through that time. He dragged them to second in the county championship. Sadly, they've never won it, but. Uh, that's their best result. They did win a white ball trophy under his leadership in 1977. He also hit six of those first class hundreds on the trot when playing first class cricket in Rhodesia. You might remember, Jeff, that we spent a lot of time talking mm-hmm. about this in the context of Kumar Sangakkara back in his final season at Surrey. Well, the record mm-hmm. he was chasing uh, was that of Mike Proctor. A varied career post-playing. A coach initially, after exclusion, uh, he was... Coaching the South African team when when they won at Lords famously uh, in 1994, he'd also won at Lords in 1970 as a player in the World Eleven. So uh, a bit of synergy there in, in what he was able to achieve at the home of cricket. Naturally, he was huge in that in that mini circuit, I suppose, in World Series cricket. Uh, whilst playing at Natal uh, in his home summers. Then he was a match referee. He was involved in quite a lot of controversial stuff as a match referee, including uh, when Pakistan left the field at the Oval in, in 2006 mm-hmm. with the Daryl Hare saga. And then he was the match referee through the Andrew Simons, Harbajan Singh debacle in 2008 at Sydney. So had a full life in cricket, did Mike Proctor, but one of the greatest to ever do it. And I neglected to mention before the 1113, that is the number of wickets collectively he took for Gloucestershire, between the 833 and the 280 in uh, first class and list day,
1: respectively. And anybody who is an expert on him is, by definition, a proctologist. Uh, (laughs) Very good. Adam, thank you for solving that for Chris. I've got to solve Oh, it's the Billy Murdoch number that wasn't Billy Murdoch for Big Jeff, all caps Big Jeff. Big Jeff. Normally I'm the biggest Jeff not here, small Jeff <laughs> uh, Big Jeff said, so good seeing my number come up. I was beginning to question the validity of the Sacred Nerd Pledge spreadsheet. Shame on me. Well, yes, fool you once, shame on you. Um, the spreadsheet is is inviolable. Look, occasionally there there might be mistakes. It doesn't hurt to make inquiries but yeah, it's, it's just a long list of numbers at the moment so they're taking a while to to come through Uh, Big Jeff says it's not Billy Murdoch just as well cheat swindler Big Jeff didn't say that I said that not Billy Murdoch think an aggregate for the most beautiful Australian batter I have seen on the final frontier right well, we've talked about Damien Martin's miraculous 2004. Before, Adam made a whole documentary series about this very series and knows everything about it, so it's just as well I'm doing this revisit visit because he wouldn't have had to look anything up. But it is still very notable, that 2004, because you've got the player who at one point was famous in domestic Australian cricket for not being able to handle spin. He was a Western Australian who couldn't make a run at the SCG. And then by 2004, Damien Martin goes to Sri Lanka, beats Murali in his own backyard, and then goes to India... Conkers, Kumblay, etc. Marili Kartik's kicking around at that point, and so on. And uh, Secure's wins for Australia in the series in both of those countries. It's the third test at Nagpur, and he comes so close to twin tons in that test. He makes 114 in the first innings, and then Australia go on to secure a big lead, thanks to the, the quick. Gillespie takes five, McGrath takes three, and then Australia bat again, and Damien Martin nicks Zahir Khan for a catch-behind on 97 after Simon Kadic has made 99. So close to to twin tons, but the job is done by those two. They've set India 543 to win. They roll them over uh, and they go up 2-0 in the series with one to play. And I did watch that innings back as well, it's a it's a beauty too It's you know, he's no Alex Tudor but um, it's a very attractive innings he's taking down the quicks at the start as you'd expect but then he's so sure against spin, he plays the sweep really well he goes that high-low sort of sweep action that gets over the top of the ball and doesn't let Kumblay's bounce uh, take any sort of edge and pop up and then he attacks Kumblay a lot as well he uses his feet often, comes down the pitch and then does the back away to cut the overcorrected short ball, it's like the textbook how to play against spin in spinning conditions, innings, and he does it beautifully, Damien Martin. In the end, he made 211 runs in the match, and Australia took an unassailable lead.
0: I reckon I listened to all of that uh, on ABC Radio. I, I was writing mm. a what turned out to be a 15,000-word paper uh, for university about civics and citizenship education. Is still okay. somewhere in the parliamentary library there in Spring Street. went quite well, actually. But it was like I had to write it in two weeks, and I remember it corresponded with that test match and had it on in the background while tapping away. So. A sign of things to come. Right, nice one. Thank you, Big Jeff, and thank you, Big Jeff. Uh, Our last revisit, I think this is our last revisit (laughs) of the day, is from Alex Brown. Uh, He sent through 527. I initially spoke about the 5 for 27 that Trent Bolt took in the 2015 World Cup against Australia at Eden Park and other gems from that match. Alex says he loved the answer and loved the show, but... Uh, it wasn't correct. I didn't go to that game. The answer is about one that I did go to. Definitely a New Zealand game I've been to, just not one in New Zealand and one I spent a lot of money going to. Right, so I ruled a few things out. Uh, and, and establish that he must have been overseas for this. And five for 27 was the score on the first morning at Cape Town uh, when New Zealand were all out for 45 in, in January 2013. Oh, uh, yes. Uh, it was the lowest score in, in all Test cricket since 1974 when India were all out for 42 at Lords and the 12th lowest of all time. And just 14 months after they'd effectively done the same thing to Australia when they bowled out uh, the Aussies for 47 at the same ground there in Cape Town, I suppose they've been held by India uh, on that measure in recent times. You're all at 36. Anyway, uh, that was Brendan McCullum's first Test match as captain, famously. Uh, and yeah, they were all out before lunch with Williamson top scoring with 13. The only player who made eight or more for New Zealand, Vernon Philander, five for seven. He was the number one bowler in the world at the time. And Dale Steyn and Mornay Moorkel did the rest. It was all over in 19.2. Two overs. Speaking of Dale Steyn, that was the innings when he took his 300th Test wicket, the joint third fastest to that mark uh, in 61 Test matches. Those who were quicker uh, were Dennis Lilly in 56 and Murali in 58. Shane Warne took 63, and then we know how well he started his career. South Africa closed that day on on 252 for three, so that's pretty similar to what happened to Australia at Trent Bridge when they were all out for 60 and they were only able to take. Um, three wickets as the as the pitch in a day improved dramatically at Nottingham, where I'll be in a couple of days. To their credit, New Zealand did get 275 in the second dig with a, a Brownlee century and McCullum making a half century, but they still lose by an innings and 27 inside three days. Then they lose the second test in, in similar circumstances at Port Elizabeth, all out for 121 and 111. And yeah, I mean, I guess it makes it all the more striking what we learnt when reading economics Jeff, about what they got right in New Zealand. Uh, You know, a a year before that, they lost to Zimbabwe. They were a rabble, really. And then you press fast forward 18 months and under McCullum, they beat Pakistan and the UAE. Then a generation later, it's Williamson, Watling, Wagner and Bolt who are in that team in Cape Town and still in the team when they win the World Test Championship final against India in the June of of 2021. So only eight years on, they're, they're world beaters. So... Yes, I think there are some lessons in in what we've learnt in in recent times on the show and and also a reminder of just how grim it was for New Zealand when Brendan McCullum took over there, which should provide some hope for English cricket fans, I suppose, that if he was able to turn that around so quickly, uh, maybe it'll be the same for England and their test team uh, in the short term. Who's to know?
1: Well, that is an answer for Alex Brown, who loves New Zealand so much that he's even happy to talk about times when things were awful for New Zealand. (laughs) That's love. That's love, Alex. Thick. And thin. Uh, that's the end of the revisits, which means all we have to do is look at some confirmations from the numbers that we have got right, because it does happen sometimes we do get them right from time to time.
0: It does. We'll go to Richard Jansmore first, five thirty-one with his number. We said Rob Bailey's cap, and then I said, "Ah, oh, probably won't be that." So I did a deep dive on the thirty-first of May instead, which I quite enjoyed doing, and Richard did too. But he's like, "No, no, you're right with your first guest. It was Rob Bailey's cap number for England." He says, "I wanted to give him his moment in the spotlight, not just because he was a Northants legend, but mainly for the reason that Adam pointed out about him turning down the rebel tour. Far too many on those tours had longer international careers than Bailey, and." gone on some more illustrious post-playing careers as well which I think is a sad indicator that the good guys don't always come first. I
1: think you're quite correct Richard and perhaps uh, perhaps we'll loop back and do more Rob Bailey stories we'll just have a we'll do Rob Bailey yeah. uh, maybe just a tribute hour you know just, just 60 minutes of Rob Bailey maybe, maybe an 11
0: of the players who said no to the Rebel Tours across Australia <laughs> and, and England that we can do a tribute to
1: them oh, it'd be There's fairly hard to populate an 11 uh, I'll tell you what uh, Matt Gaynor said that JK Lever on debut the 7th for 46 that he took is correct. Uh, so Matt Gaynor says that that is the case uh, for a man whose daily diet consisted of five pints of beer straight after play, <laughs> then a curry with a few pints before a nightcap back at the hotel according to Derek Pringle's book which I know you enjoyed. And speaking of Derek Pringle's book, so
0: we originally went to 7 for 46 for Dell against Yorkshire in a, in a game they set up in 1986 I reckon Jeff mm-hmm. where Essex batted first on day 1 on day and maybe into day 2 probably a bit of rain around on a three day game they both declared an innings uh, essex their first i think there were three declarations and it was set up for yorkshire on the final day pringle takes 7 for 46 and i saw him at lords this week and said hey i've been looking at one of your old scorecards from a game that you won for essex when you took a big bag uh, against yorkshire in 1986 he's like i cannot remember it He's like, I remember all of my 7 furs, but I cannot remember that. So after this, a bit more homework. I'm going to send the scorecard through to Dell so he can see uh, the day that he took a 7 fur. And Matt Gaynor enjoyed that
1: too. <laughs> okay, excellent. Uh, Ruto with his 158. Now, the clue was uh, the title for Storytime 69, Nice, and that it involved a place name. And so we worked out it was Nice, and we worked out that this had to do with the Olympics in 190. Or whatever it was when they 1900. played 1900 when they played cricket in the Paris Olympics, but we couldn't work out what it had to do with Nice, and we couldn't work out what the 158 actually connected to. So Ruto has uh, helped us there saying that 158 is the margin in the final. We That was the one number we couldn't find. So France lost yes. by 158 runs and that he only mentioned Nice because it happened to be in France. And so it was vaguely tangentially related enough to give us a hint about looking at France, which did help us get there. Uh, Ruto also says... I was looking at the Major League Cricket Wikipedia page the other day, which uh, has a big league which is going to start next year, apparently. Minor League Cricket has already started. Congrats to the Silicon Valley team who won the first season of the Netflix series and that. But he said there's a team from Philadelphia who've already named their squad, and it includes Liam Plunkett. And the team name is the Philadelphians. What a missed opportunity. Can't we as a community get them to call themselves the gentlemen of Philadelphia? We can get this done, says It's Funny you
0: mention that. I've met the boss of Major League Cricket uh, last week at the Oval. I'll I'll take that away as well and and mention I think it was the the, uh, general manager of of strategy
1: I met. So, um, yes, uh, consider that something I will put on the agenda at the very least. (laughs) Uh, Charlie Ryan says his 902 was the number of runs made by Phil Jakes. That was correct. Back to the drawing board, says Charlie. Thank you for that. And Rahul Venkats, 278, uh, he said, is indeed score that was made by Glenn Maxwell at the North Sydney Oval. He says, I watched his breakthrough ranchy century ball by ball amazed at his skill marrying his astonishing range of shots with the patience that people thought he didn't have. always find it amazing that uh, someone of his generational talent has never played a test match in Australia while someone similar like Joss Butler was backed to the teeth by the English management. Well, Rahul if you want to get an email read out on a show that's the email to send to this show (laughs) because we will always read that out.
0: And who knows, maybe he will. Uh, first of all, remarkable that 278 comes in such close proximity to his 100 at Ranchi one And two, uh, well, Glenn's in Sri Lanka at the moment, uh, and they have said that if you play well in the white ball games, you could play test cricket, and if he gets in the team, he'll have incumbency before the home summer. I dare to dream on behalf of one. G.J. Maxwell. I'm also going to mark this as the end of story time this week, Jeff, because I have to pick up my daughter from nursery. Uh, I'll say hi to Winifred from all of you. This has been story time number 92. If you like what we do, patreon.com forward slash the final word. You can get involved in sending us a pledge, being on the show here on the weekend, or maybe on the weekly show, joining us on Discord, which is a hoot. If you're on Patreon but not on Discord, send us a message on there. We'll send you the link straight away. And all the other benefits, which mostly are getting to talk to are the like-minded cricket types there in that wonderful corner of the internet. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, Thank you, Bad Producer Productions, who edit this show a couple of times a week, an awful lot more uh, when there is a test match taking place, which by the time you listen to this, there will be, between England's men and New Zealand at Trent Bridge, where we will have daily shows every day. I think that's everything. Uh, We will talk to you again, well, pretty soon because it's that, kind of time of the year where we're making podcasts pretty much every day. But I hope you enjoyed Storytime 92. Have a nice weekend. See
1: ya. I had to go about it